This is Collected Clan, episode 19. And I have seen kids who would hide behind their parents at the end of the year when they've come through our program. They are the spotlight. Man, if kids could just find who they are at a young age and stick with it, what a difference. Welcome to Collected Clan, the podcast featuring conversational biographies of relatable people with real stories of triumph and tragedy, plus successes and setbacks. I'm your host, Gregory Byerline. People often come and go, but these people are the company you keep. Everyday people making their mark. In our previous episode, I visited with Lauren Phelps, an accomplished creative entrepreneur. We talk about her career as a fashion designer, motherhood, and going deeper into creative pursuits. Be sure you hear that conversation too. There's also a bonus segment called Encountering Hasseltine, a funny tale about Grammy winner Dan Hasseltine, founding member and lead singer of Jars of Clay. This bonus segment is created for our Producer Circle supporters and listenable on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash collectedclan. We are 100% listener supported here, and your financial support keeps these episodes commercial free, so we can focus instead on supporting nonprofit organizations selected by our guests. My guest today is Stephen Tedeschi. Stephen is another artist in my world, and we've shared many a stage together with him at the helm of numerous dramatic arts performances, which of course we talk about here. He's very much Italian, and his fantastic family is always nearby. You'll even hear some of them in the background a time or two, enjoying life together, and this will give you an accurate glimpse into a typical Tedeschi family day. As always, we feature a non-profit spotlight selected by our guest, two actually, and stick around to the end where we have a special holiday presentation for you. Stephen is very much a fan of the Christmas season, and we've got a special surprise just for you. Visit the show notes at collectedclan.com slash Tedeschi. There you'll see photos and supporting material and learn about the nonprofits Stephen supports. So kick back and enjoy this conversation with Stephen Tedeschi. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Gregory. Should be a lot of fun. I'm excited. <laughs> this will be <laughs> a fun conversation, happen. I know. It's going to go in many different directions, I think. But one of the things I would love to hear you tell the story of is how you landed in the dramatic arts where did that come from and like, how did you get in it and why have you stayed in it? Well, believe it or not, I used to be the shyest kid around. I was scared to death to talk to people when my mother would send me to the neighbors to pick up sugar or egg or whatever she would borrow. I would break out into the biggest sweat. I would never look at anybody. I was just scared to death, scared to death. But my father always said that I could do anything that I put my mind to. It was always very encouraging to me. And I don't know that he thought that I would go into the creative realm in school. You know, most fathers always want their sons to go into sports. But I chose creative because that's just how God had fashioned me. And I was always in choir. And then in seventh grade, I took a drama class that just sort of brought me out of my shell you know, when you're in theater, you lose all your inhibitions. You have to do things that you're not comfortable doing. And even then, I was still scared. But then as we did plays, my school, my high school, we did two plays a year and 
two musicals. So we had plenty of opportunity to be in theater arts and doing things. And I realized when I was a freshman that I could hide behind a character. So I started doing that. And, you know, when you're in a production, I don't know if you've ever been into production much, but when you're in a production and you're rehearsing for months, you sort of become that character and you say the lines that are, your character says. You find ways to just say them during the day. They fit into every conversation that you have. And you're like, ooh, I could be this character. And I found myself being more comfortable being a character. So I was able to talk to people easier. And then when I went to college, I was in a singing group. And we used to travel representing the school throughout the year. But then in the summer, we traveled for a couple months. And there were four guys, four girls, and a director. Well, one week into the tour, the director quit. He got a job somewhere, quit. And they made the spokesperson, the director, for whatever reason, that person could not no longer be on stage. And then they made me the spokesperson. I was comfortable singing, but not talking. So the first couple services that we did, I just sucked horribly as the spokesperson. I had to introduce the group, talk about the school, try to get people to come to the school. I was awful. And then I thought, I remembered, you know what? I could just pretend that I'm a character. So I did that and I got better and better at it. And then I realized how that helped me. And when I was... I'm kind of piecing this all together, but when I was 16, I had a dream that the Lord wanted me to start a Christian theater. Never knew when that was, what that was. You know, God gives you dreams and who knows when they're going to happen. So when I was in college in that group, um, I realized what that did for me. And I wanted to help young people, kids, find who they are, find their inner character, develop who they are, develop a good foundation with who they are. So they can believe in their faith and their morals and not compromise things if they're going into theater, if they're going into the arts, not compromise those things, but have a good foundation in their inner character. So that's kind of where it all started. Me just being a shy, awkward kid into this helped me. I really feel like this is how I can help kids in their life as well. So, yeah, that's that's kind of how it started and where it is today. Do you recall the character that you put on when you were the spokesperson that allowed you to actually to do what you were asked to do? Yes. I can't completely remember his name. I think it was um, – no, I don't remember his name. But it was in Carousel. I was the Carousel owner. It was a very simple part in the play, but he had to be confident and he carried himself well. So I just did that. I thought, you know what, I can be confident. And I just talked about who we are. I talked about the school. And I'll never forget that night. Like the first two nights after I did it, the director was like, man, that was horrible. Just terrible. <laughs> I don't even know. I ended up talking about my girlfriend. We just broke up. And I was like, why did I even talk about that from the stage? That's so stupid. Why did I even bring that up? But then this, after the third night when I was the character, he's like, wow, I don't know what you did, but do that again. Because, you know, I just... I could do this. I could just be confident and just do it. And I have seen throughout the years where we're doing this, what we, my wife and I have a nonprofit called the Arts Place. And that's how we take first through 12th grade kids and take them through this program. And I have seen kids who would hide behind their parents at the end of the year 
when they've come through our program, they are the spotlight. And it's almost, I've seen some kids to the point where it's like, okay, you got to chill out a little bit. Stop talking. (laughs) They've gone the the 180 degrees and have just really changed. And that's really what we want to do because, man, if kids can just find who they are at a young age and stick with it, what a difference. Yeah. What plays did you do in high school or college? Oh, man, you're asking me to like dig deep into my old brain. <laughs> we did Arsenic and Old Lace. We did Cheaper by the Dozen. We did Finian's Rainbow Musical, Brigadoon, Carousel, Sound of Music, Oklahoma. You know, all the Rodgers and Hammerstein, Stein, popular ones right. back in the day. Yes, I was once Conrad Birdie from Bye Bye Birdie. Yeah, we did. Yes, absolutely. I, uh, I, I'm not saying I was a good one, but I held the role. Hey, um, that was in high school. Fun, right? That's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> and let's see, there was one more high school musical that we did, and it's it. I'm drawing a blank. I'll think of it in a moment because my mind is now on the community theater that I did after high school. While I was in college, I came back and did two shows in a summer did South Pacific again, but I was just a Marine. I was just in the chorus. And I was a bottle dancer in Fiddler on the Roof. Fun. I love that show. That is a great show. And I can remember it wasn't opening night. I think it was the second night. One one of these nights, um, you know, I'm doing those uh, like the Cossack dance, you know, like the the deep knee bends, kick your feet yeah. out, that whole thing. <laughs> and I had to do that from stage right to stage left with this bottle hat thing on. And the other bottle dancers and I are, are just doing this Cossack dance across the stage. And I hear this sound I'm like, holy, what is that sound? And we get off stage and there every, all the stage hands and the dressers off in the wings were like, did you guys hear that? We're like, yeah, what was that? It's like, you guys got a standing ovation. I'm like, what? Wow, that's cool. So, so I, yeah, it was a bucket list item at some point to receive a standing ovation. And I was able to check that off when I was, I don't know, 19, 20 years old. Now, if I were to try to do that dance now, um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I would be able to get back up. But um, at not even 20 and probably 145 pounds and just full of energy and having just eaten the entire refrigerator, I could, uh, I could, I could pull that off. Yeah, that's really, really good times. Very fond memories there. That's awesome. How fun. Which kind of led to us hitting it off when when we met. By the time I had moved here to Nashville, which was in May of 92, I didn't arrive at Christchurch until sometime in 93. But from then on, you know, when we stood next to each other in the choir and I, I could just tell we kind of had similar paths uh, that brought us to the same choir loft and... Uh, yeah, I just remember jumping into the church drama stuff. and Yeah, as a matter of fact, when we left Christ Church, they said that they'd probably never do theater again and to take what I wanted. So I took the costumes. And this summer, with the storage facility that we have them in, um, their air conditioner broke and it sort of flooded, made everything stink. Needless mm. to say, I had to wash all the costumes. And I found the first costume that I custom made for you as that soldier in Easter Spectacular. Yeah. Talk about the memories. Like, wow, I remember you coming to the apartment and I was fitting it on you. Crazy. I'm glad I can still remember stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Not everybody has that kind of memory. That was awesome. I hung on to that thing. I had forgotten that you, like, 
you made those costumes. Yeah, I made most of them. You didn't yeah. just design them, or, or did you have like a team of seamstresses and tailors to to do it? For Easter Spectacular, we had volunteers, anybody that wanted to. So me and Jamie Carney pretty much designed them all and then cut them out. And, you know, we didn't use patterns. We just, whatever we dreamed up in our head, we just cut them out and then showed people how to put them together. Yeah, we made them all, hundreds, hundreds of them. You still have all of those? Don't have them all, but that one specifically I kept just, I don't know, because made it for you and it was neat and I just kept it. Yeah. Where did the sewing and tailoring skills come from? Well, when I was in fourth grade, I had to do a speech. Now, mind you, I was terrified <laughs> at that time. Of course. Remember. So I had to do a speech about George Washington, and I figured the best way to get a better grade is to maybe dress like him. So I didn't know what to do. There weren't costume shops everywhere in those days. I thought, how hard could it be? You know, it's just kind of like, a vest with long tails in the back and sleeves, you know, it's pretty much the same. So I made an outfit and um, got a C on the speech, but an A on the costume. <laughs> <laughs> so that averages out to a B, right? Right. <laughs> and then my aunt had a soft luggage company that I was the floor manager for when I was in college, when I come home in the summers. So I had to learn to sew with industrial machines to show the ladies or the sewers how to put the the luggage together so i learned to sew on a better machine at that time and then i would see things in the store and i'm like i am not paying 200 dollars for that when it's the half a yard of material i can make that myself so i just started making things myself and you know like i say a sleeve is a sleeve it kind of all goes in the same how you manipulate it and put it in so yeah i guess in fourth grade is when i started and then after that i like to I like to dress up on Sunday mornings. I know that's kind of not the norm these days, but that's the way I was raised. And, you know, so I started making a different vest every Sunday for me to wear and a tie because I love men's fashion, especially like the 20s, 30s and 40s at the height of men's fashion. Because, you know, fashion for men at that time was really an art form. It wasn't just like go grab a suit. It was from underwear to socks to the collar that they put on, the cufflinks to the design of the fabric. You know, so it was really an art form and I love that part of it. So actually my son and I a few years ago decided we were going to bring that back and I put some patterns and things together that I didn't really think went well, but the comments I got that day. <laughs> so yeah, after that, I just started doing stuff like that and that's sort of where it came in. I just make things for myself. I remember when, uh, when you posted that and for it's only for comparison what came to mind was ame churches here in the south or black congregations you know um what i forget what the african-american baptist organization is and and the name's not important but you just picture these little old black ladies in the south and they're amazing hats absolutely um, gosh i mean it's just it's a spectacle and it's it's just their thing. You know, it's like a daughter of the king sort of thing. And they're going into the presence of very important people. So right, they dress for Sunday morning as if they were going to, you know, have occasion to meet the Queen of England or something like that. So when you posted the uh, vest and bow tie thing with you and Aaron that I went to, well, if that's just an extension of the <laughs> the black ladies in the South and their fans and their awesome hats. Absolutely. Because they know how to do it. Yes. 
They do it well. They do it well. I've mentioned on the show before that I was 39 when my first child came along. First two children were daughters, and then third is my son, which is reverse from yours. Your your lead engine was a boy, and then you yep. uh, trailed it with girls. You and I are close to the same age. We, we were talking the other day. I, I think you might be maybe two or three years older than I am, but still, it's going to be a long time before... I experience what you have recently experienced. I would love to hear from you as the father of a daughter or well, two daughters, what it was like inside your head to let her go and marry somebody. Well, <laughs> because honestly, right now I cannot even fathom that. And you probably should just stay with that. Cause I don't think you can ever be prepared. <laughs> yeah. It was horribly exciting. Horrible and I- exciting. <laughs> It was horribly exciting, yes, because <laughs> at least his husband and I were friends for about two years before he actually expressed an interest in her. You know, he'd come over to the house to be with Aaron, or we'd go out on the guy night to movies or something. You know, we'd just go out to eat. So I knew him pretty well first. But then one day he called and asked if he could talk to me and what father can't see, what that's about. Yeah. So um, I said, yeah, sure, come on over. So he wanted to make sure that no one was home. So we sat down and he said, I wanted to make sure he felt intimidated. And he kind of did. But sir, um, I, he never called me sir. I, I'd like to know if I could date your daughter, to which I had no problem answering. You know, we're no longer friends. I'm now her father. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> so he was nice just kind of looking at, he was just sort of looking at me, but... Um, after that, you know, it was all good. David's a wonderful young man who loves Elise with his entire being. So that made it a lot easier. Not completely easy to hand your daughter over to some guy, but it made it easier that we knew him and he loves her with all of his heart. So I would suggest for any father, walk your daughter down the aisle as many times as possible before that day, because there is no amount of time that will keep you from crying even that day. When I saw her the first time in her dress, and I saw her up into that in her dress for fittings and planning the wedding, but just seeing her, just turning around and seeing your daughter as beautiful as can be, and you know her makeup and her hair and her dress, just gorgeous, and you 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 just go back to the day she was born, and you yeah, and you, me, I just burst into tears. It was all I could do. I couldn't say anything except you look beautiful, and I hugged her, and. Then you take that 4,000-mile walk down the longest aisle of your life <laughs> to hand her over to some kid. <laughs> and it goes so quickly, but yet it's such a long walk. And I was just trying to think of other things just because I didn't want to cry. I figured I probably would, but – and I didn't. I actually made it. Wow. Um, and then when I got there, um, you know, I just handed her over and said, she's yours now. You know, we love her. Just take care of her. We love you too. And – it was okay. It was good. I've already threatened the girls that, and, and I usually tell them this when we're like in one of those just epic hugs because they're they're like professional huggers. This is how I'm going to walk you down the aisle right here. <laughs> your feet will not be touching the ground. I'm going to hold you like my baby girl. I don't right. care if I wrinkle your dress. I'm going to hold on to you as long as I can. Absolutely. And then I'm going to hip check that boy down at the end of the aisle. <laughs> yep <laughs> exactly the truth 
Oh, I I still can't just wrap my head around that, which is a good thing because I mean she's only nine for crying out loud. But <laughs> you got some time. Yes, but I've I remember when you told me that she was engaged. I was like, um, right? Hmm, uh, yeah, exactly. She was just nine, not too long ago. It goes fast. Everyone tells you that it goes quickly, and you kind of believe it until you actually live through it, and you're like, wow, where did that? Where did those twenty years just go? Right. Was that with at her age when she wed was twenty? She was twenty, about to turn twenty. She Almost twenty one. Twenty one, yeah. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was a nice time. You know, we're Italian, so it was a big party. It was great. <laughs> lots of family, lots of cookies. <laughs> so, what was the um, act of intimidation? What layer of your Italianness did you tap into when he came over? Yeah. I just opened the door and just had that stern look on my face that he's not really seen, but had seen before. You, you let him know that you knew he, why he was there? Like, glad you're here. What do you want to talk about? Punk. You know, very straightforward. <laughs> very to the <laughs> point. Yeah, it just kind of, I don't know. Everyone says they're always afraid of me anyway, people in the drama thing. I guess, you know, just do what you're supposed to do and I won't yell at you. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not rocket science. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Just follow instructions. Very simple. <laughs> They're laid out for you to help you. Right. And I even tell you, have your lines memorized for next week. It'll be good for you. <laughs> <laughs> then your days may be long on the earth. <laughs> All right. And your daughter, yes, she's in She's in the arts place now. So she knows. She's come prepared. She's not a thing to worry about. She just kind of sits there while we're yelling at everyone else. <laughs> That's <laughs> is fine. That's great to know. And she has, uh, speaking of someone who just like blossoms or explodes out personality, just in the few short months that she has been at the Arts Place program, she has been more, uh, I'll call it animated here at the house. She and Margo and Miles have always like replayed a musical scenes. If we're watching a, a musical or whatever, you know, they'll, they'll rewind it and do the song and dance number and they're you know they're awkward five and <laughs> seven and eight year old scenarios which is just fantastic but molly has started writing she just all kinds of creative outlets so it's working that's good she's very good there are things that i've seen in her that i'd love to tap into and help her corral those things she's that's really good, good here. What she does. so i'm grateful that it is you and your awesome Tedeschi crew and your whole family and well, thanks. Well, everyone honored. involved that is is pouring into her there because we're certainly trying to instill a love of performing arts. Well, that's good. She has it. We we have a here. Okay, kids, here's how you get a yes out of us. You ask a question, mommy, daddy, can I have some fruit or vegetables? Yes. All day, every day, any time of day, you'll always get a yes out of us. There are times when we have to say no because we're your parents, but that will always get a yes. And the other thing is, Daddy, can we watch Mary Poppins? Yes. Daddy, can we watch Frozen? Yes. Daddy, can we watch Shrek the Musical? Yes. Daddy, can we watch Phantom of the Opera? Uh, yes. Um, Absolutely. So, so they, they've fallen in love with musicals. That's awesome. So That's great. They'll be well-rounded children. I hope it lasts. It will. I really hope it lasts. Well, we did the same thing with our kids. They wanted, and yeah, it did. It lasted. They get mad when we go to see things and they don't get to. <laughs>
Yeah, we took both girls to a matinee of the touring Fan of the Opera that was through here awesome. uh, a month or so ago, and that was a, just a fantastic production. Yeah. It was probably the best touring cast and production of any show that I had seen. It did not disappoint. It actually exceeded my expectations. I went in with a little reserved going, eh, okay. And we sat down and we pulled the playbill out and, oh, of course, we have a understudy Christine. Yay. Right. But sometimes they're better. <laughs> and she was great. She <laughs> was awesome. so good. I was like, man, I can't imagine what the lead is. I know, right? But it'll be her one of these days because this understudy was fantastic. That's great. I'm glad they had a good experience. Yeah, and they loved it. They took their dolls. and <laughs> They're still little. Hey, it's Gregory here. By now you've seen that Stephen and I share a love of the performing arts and our families. He was also influential on the father-son front way back over 20 years ago. Here's more about that. So first, some backstory. Aaron was born, let me put my thinking cap on, 95, 96? Is that right? 95. 95, yeah. Okay. So there is a memory I have of you and Aaron. This would have been 97, 98. So he would have been two, three, somewhere in there. Yeah. Definitely long enough to be your adorable son, but also long enough in your world and active and animated enough that you could tell he was your buddy, Hmm. that you were just thrilled with his company. And I was up in the choir loft and you were down a little bit stage left, but down in the, the pews, you know, a couple rows back. And I remember watching the two of you just hanging out, being buds together. And that memory will forever be etched in my mind because that was the first time that I recall seeing a young father just hanging out and being buds with his boy. And my son, Miles, now is just a little bit older than that. So I have been thinking about that. He's three and a half now. So let's say he's no more than a year older than Aaron was at this time. All right. Yeah. That is a standard that I see in my head almost every day that I try to live up to. Wow. And I just thought you should know that. Wow. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, that's really good that you saw that because Aaron to this day is my best friend. I'm his. He always tells me that. And there was always time for him. I never missed anything. It started early when he was, let's see, he was, we did Easter Spectacular and I was so busy. He must have been like six months, I think. Maybe a little, maybe more than that, eight or whatever. But when it finally got to the night of the show, the shows of Easter Spectacular, I went in and someone was, Debbie was holding him, I think. And I, you know, I'm like, come here, come to dad. And he wouldn't come because he, I hadn't been around much. And that night I said, I won't do that again. I'll never do mm. that again. Wow. And I have always been home for dinner unless I'm out of town. So what I would do is I'd work at the church go home for dinner. When they'd go to bed, I'd go back and work. So I'd never missed anything because I vowed that that's not as important as being home and being their friend. And then the reason I said that I'm glad you saw that now is because people have asked me, how do you get your son to hug you, to kiss you, to love you so much? 
how can I do that with my son? I'm like, well, how old is your son? 15. I'm like, well, I hate to tell you this, but it's kind of too late. Mm. You got to start from the day one, <laughs> you know, and it, they, they see it, but they miss it because they long for it when they're teenagers, but it's too late. You've already had to, should have been working on that, which is good because you can, and you've seen it and you've set that time aside. Not because, not that you had to see that in order to do it. It's just something that's in your mind. So it's there. You may have, you may have done it anyway. Maybe. But a lot of guys, a lot of guys miss it. I actually don't know whether I would have or not. You know, this is one of those, you know, if you traveled back in time in a, in a time machine and you messed one thing up and then that changes the trajectory of everything. Okay. So it's just conjecture at this point, but there are times I'm hanging out with miles and I'm looking down at him and he's this, you know, little three foot tall blonde haired boy, which Aaron was <laughs> at the time. I remember right. when Aaron had blonde hair and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I mean, he'll look up, look up at me and he'll smile and I instantly see you hanging out with your little wow. buddy. So that's, that is a forever reminder. And then this weekend when he closed the play with his monologue, that was just like the icing on the cake. Cause it was, there was the beginning and the current end and it was an end and it was an end because it was the finale of the play. But that was a very heavy thing from this weekend. And, and we, we should catch listeners up on what I'm talking about. So earlier, you have mentioned the group that you have called The Arts Place. Would you describe what it is, what you do, why you do it, and what took place this weekend? The Arts Place is a training place for 1st through 12th graders. That right now is through the means of theatrical exercises. We meet every Thursday during the school year, mainly, and just take them through theatrical exercises to help them develop a character for a production. But in, in training, give them a boldness about themselves, help them find their character, help them to be able to fit in socially, help them develop skills where they're able to talk to people one-on-one, talk to adults, get up on the stage comfortably and give their testimony if necessary, or just talk. Um, give them a good foundation in who they are so that when they leave us, they're able to, they're able to stand on their own, not jeopardize or compromise their faith or their morals or their beliefs or their gender, but have a good foundation in who they are, which culminates in each, each season. We go from August to December, January to June. It ends with a theatrical production, a play of sorts, but this weekend, we just finished a Christmas production, and my son closed with an epilogue, very short, um, challenging the audience, you know, with, with, with a wrap-up of what the play was about. So he just challenged the audience with that. And it was nice to see my son, because when I looked at him, I'm like, wow, you're me 25 years ago. That's what I did, and it was nice to pass it on and be proud of what he did. Yeah. I had a sense of pride also, uh, though minor compared to what yours was, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, here's this tall, grown, bearded, black haired, young Italian (laughs) man, and he's giving his epilogue and I'm seeing a three foot tall, little blonde haired boy. Yeah. And his 
tall, grown Italian dad. <laughs> and, and, you know, right? And, you know, the whole time I have always been in his life and never, hardly ever missed, like I said, a meal at home, never missed anything, never missed a game because I've seen too many movies or different things or have seen people in my life that their dads were never around because things were always more important. But in the end, I wanted to make sure that my son felt loved, knew that I was his friend after his father, so that when, now that we are both older, he's older, we are friends, very good friends, and he'll always come to me with anything. And I go to him with things as well. You know, So that was more important to me than making sure that the sets were done or the costumes were done, because they're always going to get done. I would just stay up late and do it later, especially when he was little. Yep. I didn't want to miss that time with him. Yep. Well, that's some good seeds you planted back then that have grown into something really, really awesome. And from the outside, I thought you wanted to, would want to know that. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. And it, appreciate is, seeing that. it is a very high bar you have set <laughs> for me to get over. But I would rather yeah. shoot for that high bar and get over it. Maybe not get over it, but it'll be higher than I would have... Mm-hmm reached on my own don't know that i did everything right but you know we try our best you might talk to aaron and find out (laughs) (laughs) and here's something completely different (laughs) right so yeah well this weekend was was just remarkable molly had a fantastic experience thank you for bringing her into your fold absolutely she made the best little sheep she was so cute and great she just delivered her lines perfectly just perfect. I was a proud papa. Had I been wearing yeah, buttons, I might have shot her in the eye. As <laughs> <laughs> you should have been. It's <laughs> good. Thank you for listening to these conversational biographies about real life with relatable guests. This episode is sponsored by Angie Byerline with a monthly pledge through our Patreon platform. She now has access to unreleased segments of these conversations plus special bonus materials like Encountering Hasseltine mentioned at the top of this episode. If you too find value in what we're doing on Collected Clan, your support will pave the way to creating text transcriptions for hearing-impaired followers and added searchability and shareability of show notes. To help make this happen, please visit our website at collectedclan.com and click the Support tab to learn how you can financially support this show for as little as $5 a month. We appreciate your support. Now back to this conversation. Um, talk to me about your Italianness. Because I love that you like embrace your heritage and do all the Italian things and do it just like what I imagine an Italian doing. Um, <laughs> how deep are your Italian roots? Well, my wife's parents, her mother came from Rome. Her father was born here, but his parents, I think they were in Rome. My grandparents came over on the boat whatever the boat is <laughs> yeah. from Sicily back in, you know, way back in the early 1900s. So yeah, we still have relatives over in Italy. I mean, you know, being Italian is the best. There are two people in America, Italians and those who want to be, <laughs> but the Italians always say, you know, so it runs deep. I mean, Italian family. Hello. Have you seen the Godfather? Yeah. It well, and deep. that's yeah, Sicilian too. So literally <laughs> right? you said your grandparents came over on the boat. Yes, both my grandmother and my grandfather. You know, here's an interesting story. Our heritage is, I don't know if you're familiar with the Assemblies of God, but my grandfather, 
helped start the CCNA, which is the Christian Church of North America, and it's kind of an Italian movement of the Holy Spirit. It's sort of like the Assemblies of God, but with it just Italian movement. Huh. That was my grandfather, and Miriam's father also helped start that. So her father and my grandfather worked together, and when we met, Miriam and I met in college, we didn't know that until we started going, we went home, you know, for breaks and we're talking about, hey, I met this girl, her name's Miriam Palma. And my dad was like, um, is her dad named Eugene? They used to travel as evangelists and work together. So that heritage of Christianity wow. and that CCNA goes deep in both of our families. So when we met, we were like, this is unbelievable. Well, certainly we're meant to be together. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's just amazing. It's still amazing when we tell people the story. Well, see, there is what all these years I've known you, I have just learned that. I didn't know that about you. Yeah. Oh, and you know, here's here's my love for coffee. It started when I was two because At my grandfather. Two? Well, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, when in Rome, right? <laughs> right, exactly. My grandfather, and he gave me my first espresso cup. I still have it. Mm. And, and I vaguely, vaguely remember, I can remember standing in the kitchen at two years old and I don't remember a whole lot. There are a few things I can remember, but I remember pretty vaguely standing in the kitchen and him pointing at me saying, give that boy some espresso. <laughs> <laughs> and he got that little cup and he gave me, you know, it was like half, half espresso, half milk, which is still probably too much espresso for a two year old. And I just, I don't know, I guess I liked it. And Ever since then, I've always had coffee and espresso. So that's why I guess I think I'm a good coffee snob because I have tasted good espresso from two years old. So when I go into these coffee shops and they're like, this is the best and it's not really the best, <laughs> you know, it's just a hype. Yeah. So my love for coffee started when I was little, little, obviously two years old. I love it. And yeah, it's just always been black. Probably at four years old, I started weaning myself from cream. <laughs> <laughs> I remember my first cup of coffee and it was not as miraculous as yours. <laughs> You're probably a little older. I was six. Well, see. <laughs> I was six. My parents went down to the school on a Saturday to volunteer and paint murals. Mom painted murals in the elementary school wing and dad helped build a playground, which basically meant that I and my schoolmates, you know, the other children of the parents who were there working, because my school, I went to the same building K through 12. My high school graduating class was 42 people oh, wow. and yeah. half of them I was in kindergarten with. Sounds like mine. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's very st a strong likelihood that the kids I was playing with during my first cup of coffee, I walked the graduation line with. Right. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, they had, you know, coffee and donuts or cinnamon rolls or something out for the volunteers, whatever. And I picked up one of those styrofoam cups and I went to that percolator, that five gallon or two and a half <laughs> gallon percolator. And I popped that black valve and I got some black gold in this cup and mm. I put in like eight that, that little packets of sugar. <laughs> And I took a one taste of that and I spit it across the room. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you people like this stuff? <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> and then I was off coffee for, oh, easily 14, 15 years. 
And I remember having my first cappuccino when I was in college. And See, that's f- it, it just sounds good. It makes you feel good just to hear that word. Yes. <laughs> yes. Do something to you. I went to college in Springfield, Missouri, and my college roommate and I were at the mall, Battlefield Mall, I think is what it was called. Wow. And we were at a glorious. This is I, I'm going to spell it out for you because I remembered it was a seminal moment. Uh, we were at the Gloria Jean Coffee Shop, which was the thing before Starbucks. Right. And that. he was from kind of like the Beverly Hills part of Detroit. Right. The the the, the richer part of Detroit. I did not grow up in that, so was, I was kind of following his lead because I didn't know good fine much of anything at that point. So he orders this coffee drink that's a cappuccino. I was like, well, what is that? And he explained it to me. He's like, huh, I'll try one of those. So I ordered one. And the first sip, that's when I fell in love with cream in my coffee. In in recent years, I've gotten to where I can drink it black if it's like the right coffee. Right. And if it's brewed by someone who knows what they're doing then yeah just give it to me black that's the only way it needs to be is just the straight coffee but right um but i do have a a a half and half or heavy cream in my coffee habit because of that experience with that cappuccino yeah if it's good you can drink it black if it's not if you see me putting cream or sugar in my coffee you know it's the (laughs) worst world right (laughs) oh and when we were in uh italy uh for our pre-baby moon Megan and I went over there, and I swear all we did was find coffee shops mm. and gelato nice. and pizza, like all of the, like the stereotypical stuff. But it was definitely a win in Rome thing, right? Um, found a coffee shop over there in Siena called Cafe Nanini. Mm. that every time I hear of my friends going over to Italy, I'm like, if you go to Siena, would you bat your eyes at one of the baristas <laughs> and see if you can bring me back one of the Cafe Nanini espresso mugs? And it has yet to happen. Mm. And they don't ship to U.S., so I can't order online, nor nor can I read an Italian website. I mean, it's that <laughs> authentic. They haven't globalized yet. They don't have an English website. But there was a restaurant in... Verona that uh, we stopped for a mid-morning coffee and Megan batted her eyes at the tall, dark Italian there. And he let us bring home a cup and saucer. So we still, <laughs> nice. we still have that one. So that's, that's my introduction to Italian coffee. Mm. And uh, it really is good. It is good. Well, you know, the guy I use, my favorite pot is the Bialetti mocha pot. And he, developed it a little before 1933 but that's when it first started so i figured the guy has you know perfected the experience and the taste pretty well yeah it's been around a while i am almost to the bottom of a cup of my mocha pot brew mm. for the night <laughs> doesn't last long in my cup it's just a simple the simple science behind it it's just right you know insert good coffee now i i will say that my favorite coffee region is outside the borders of Italy. Don't strike me down. That's okay. We definitely prefer dark Italian wines, but I will take a Guatemalan single origin coffee Mm. over just about any other coffee anywhere. You know, they're all good if they're roasted properly. True. Yes, you got to be roasted properly. True. Uh, And my affinity for the Guatemalan coffee comes from uh, visiting there uh, a few years back. So it's probably part sentimental, but... There's something about the 
you know, like in wine, there's the terroir, however you say that French word. And Guatemala is a volcanic country. So there's a lot of ash in the soil and um, just the elevation and the, you know, the whole ecosystem and all that stuff down there. It's like, I can smell, like if you put a flight of just ground coffee in front of me, I could find the Guatemalan one Mm. with my nose. That's good. You're just making me... mm. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds so good. It's really good. I'm going to have to take a break and go make some coffee. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Um, Have you seen the movie Eat, Pray, Love? I have not. Okay. Um, There's a scene in there. So, okay. So this movie is basically a woman who has a life crisis and she travels the world to find herself. So it's basically a three-act movie. There's the eat portion, which is set in Italy because it's surrounded by food and the fellowship around a table and and all that stuff. And then there's Prey, where she goes to the east, Tibet somewhere, and, you know, finds herself in meditation and and all that stuff. And then she finds love, and I forget what part of the world that is it. It's been a while since I've seen Act 2 and 3 because I love Act 1 the eat portion. And there's a scene in there where this Italian just berates the American for, you know, bringing the American way of life into the Italian way of life. And that's not surprising. And it's one of those, like, you don't know how to, you don't know how to slow down or, or or whatever. Um, When we were over there, I was like, Oh my gosh. It's true. We're one of those Americans. <laughs> I know, right? We we popped into a coffee shop and asked for a to-go cup of coffee, and they looked at us like we had three heads. What is what a is to-go that? cup? Right? We don't serve coffee in yeah, plastic take cups. Take one of our cups to go. Or paper cups. <laughs> it's just funny. I love, I love the differences where people come from. I want to celebrate those differences instead of just wipe them Absolutely. away yep. and everybody become homogenized. So I, I liked that the Italian just ripped into the American way of life. No, <laughs> slow down. Oh, yeah. They can do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they can. <laughs> My mother-in-law once did that to me because she's from Rome. She still has an accent, you know, after all these years. And I was doing an American thing. She's like, oh, that is so American. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of where I live. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing? <laughs> I used... Um, white vinegar instead of balsamic vinegar once for the salad. <laughs> she flipped out. Once. <laughs> once. I've learned my lesson since. <laughs> yes. Cut that side eye or the bony elbow. <laughs> or both. Yeah, it was kind of both. <laughs> yeah. The Italian way of life just, it sounds so cool. Yeah. You know, and she was right. The balsamic is better. So, <laughs> you know, anything Italian is usually made from scratch or there's just such a heritage, you know, Italians love everything that they do. So, you know, that there's going to be lots of love put into it. Desserts take forever to make. They're not extremely sweet. So you have to know that people really went out of their way if they make something for you, because it takes a long time. Italian stuff takes forever to make. And it's always worth it. It, Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You guys have have figured it out for sure. I wonder if that's where the phrase "when in Rome" comes from. You know, I'm not real sure, but it seems to fit with just about anything like that. I, I do find it funny that the coffee drink we know as the Americano. Do you know the origin of that drink? Not completely. 
This is great. Okay, so it's World War II time, and the American soldiers are over in Italy, but they can't – I'm doing air quotes. You can't see this, but I'm doing air right. quotes. They can't <laughs> handle a full espresso. They're too strong. It's too strong. So the Italians figured out that if they just added more water to it and diluted it, they could handle it. <laughs> they could handle it, and then they it is hereby dubbed an Americano. <laughs> stupid Americans. <laughs> so, so it's one of those, you know, I can just picture the Italian barista with his fingers right. just coming off his chin going, you crazy Americans right. diluting our coffee. <laughs> you Americano. It's <laughs> awesome. Uh, we've come a long way as a country, but we still got yeah. so far to go. <laughs> right. Yeah. We still don't like the finer thing. Well, you know, that's not completely true, but you know, there are finer things out there that we could like that we just kind of overlook for convenience and speed and trendy things. But, Dominance. Yep. Let's take a quick break for our nonprofit spotlights to this time as described directly by Stephen through his direct connection with these organizations. Rejoice School of Ballet and Narrowgate Foundation. Rejoice School of Ballet is actually both of these came from when we were at Christ Church. And I worked with Patricia Cross, um, develop the actual dance part of the fine arts at Christ Church. And what she does, she works in inner city in Nashville. She motivates by Christ's love and teaches. Really, they have Bible studies with these inner city kids, and they empower the youth to realize their potential by their training and their nurturing and celebrating and their dance and the things that they do. And they really feed into these kids, and they've grown from nothing to, like, I think they have, like, over 200 kids this season. And it's really, really good. And they they do stuff all the time. Nashville Ballet works with them, so they're really good. And then Narrowgate Foundation which I started working with Bill and Stacy Spencer, too, at Christ Church. When we first met them, they didn't even have Narrowgate Foundation, but I just saw on Facebook today, they're in their 90th, graduating their 90th class of guys, and they take anywhere between five and I think maybe 12 guys at a time. They go through the program for six to nine months, and they take just troubled guys. They're maybe just looking for their place. Um, They do it through biblical training and personal discipleship, challenging adventures, new life skills. You know, they pause from the distractions of life and they go to this place and it's a leaper's fork. It's a gorgeous place if you've never been there. And they just, through Bible study and just different things that they do, help these guys find their calling for the future. And that doesn't necessarily have to mean that all these guys are pastors or whatever, but just pulls them out of the junk of the world that they're in, drug addictions and, you know, being in and out of jail and just things that they just can't get a grip on life. And they take them through and teach them and disciple them and mentor them, love them. And when they send them back out into the world, they're prepared. They have a foundation, you know, much like we do with the arts place and give the kids a good foundation in who they are from a young age. They take these guys and help them refashion their foundation. So when they go out into the world, they're able to maintain that. So I've worked with both of them. Patricia's really making a difference, and so is Narrowgate Foundation, so we really support them. To learn more about these organizations and the work they do, please visit RejoiceSchoolOfBallet.org and Narrowgate.org. Now let's return to our conversation with Stephen Tedeschi as we discuss one of his favorite topics of all, Christmas. So I'm going to ask you a question, and a number's going to pop into your head because I know you count. How many days between now and Christmas? 
There are 27. 27. Yes. Where did the Christmas countdown come from? Because, okay, so listeners who don't know this, on December 26th, if you are on Stephen's Facebook profile, <laughs> you will get an update saying that Christmas is 364 days away. Yay! The countdown <laughs> begins the day after. <laughs> well, absolutely. I mean, it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> and I did notice one year when there was a leap year that you actually counted the leap year day. Leap the year, right? <laughs> yes. Uh, where does that come from? The countdown or just why I love Christmas so much? Actually, the countdown, I don't know. I guess that just started when I was little. And I, it's just in there for some reason. You know, people know that they could ask me any day of the year and I know how many days till Christmas. And it's funny because there's a lot of controversy. Some people say that I have the wrong day and I'm like, I've been doing this since I was 10. <laughs> Don't tell me I have the wrong day. Have you really done this since you were age 10? Yes, I have. But I don't know. I don't know why. You know, I think it was because Christmas at my house, there are lots of traditions and lots of memories and the actual, the actual meaning of Christmas. You know, it, it meant so much to my family just to be together. And it wasn't so much the gifts, but just the warmth of the season and being together and the traditions and the things we did. And I just love that feeling. So I guess that's why I would just count the days until we got to experience it again. And, you know, going into the malls and things, we would always just be real patient. So when we get to the cash register and, you know, everyone's frazzled and yelling at people, to tell them to hurry up, we would just be like, you know what, just take your time which was not the norm. So I just Yeah, that's that. completely not Italian. No, it's not. And and, and sometimes... not I mean you guys are east kind of east coastish Italians too, which definitely <laughs> right. is not an east coastish right? Italian. And I have to admit sometimes as I got older that was very difficult for me <laughs> to just be patient during the holidays, but it was also good for me to work on my patience. So that was good. And um you know just counting the days to Christmas was just something that was always there. When I was 10, I just started doing that. And again, with the controversy is you can't count the day that you're on people. So, <laughs> you know, that's why they're like, well, you're not counting Christmas Day. I'm like, right, because that is actually Christmas. Because you're there. Right. So it's always they always add one more day than what I typically add. Not everybody, but some people get it. Describe a Tedeschi family Christmas back in the day. What was it a what was it that your family did that you fell in love with so much? You know, Miriam's family was different and, and I know it has nothing to do with my family when I was a kid, but they believed it was a pagan holiday, so they didn't really decorate or anything. They were allowed to decorate a plant, which, you know, now that they're older, they're like, that didn't make sense because we could decorate a plant. Why not a tree? Trees <laughs> <my> a plant. <laughs> family, right? I know, right? My family would just man, we'd pull out all the stops and we always had a live tree and just anything that we could. We had a playhouse. It was actually a barn, a small barn that my dad had. It was like 20 by 20. He had, you know, his lawn equipment stuff in. But in the winter, because Ohio is like freezing, my mom would make cookies starting, I don't know, the middle of November. And she would put them out there and we called it the cookie house. And I've never seen too many cookies. My dad would take us out there and we'd just sit in there and he'd be like, have what you want. I'm like, Really? You know, at six years old, you're just like hopped up on sugar and cookies and coffee. <laughs> you know, you're not six year old supposed to be doing that. So that was a great <laughs> memory. And she would, I mean, she would make fantastic cookies. Of course, you know, they were Italian and cutouts and all that kind of stuff. And then just um, a lot of traditions we did at our church. You know, you always have the kids in the nativity and 
we always did a play or something. So there were just a lot of traditions that actually we've even started with our family. And you might see in our Facebook page if you're following. You know, we do family door art, which happened the day after Thanksgiving when we're all home. We didn't want our kids just sitting in front of television all day or just not doing anything. So we just got out everything creative we could find and just said we're going to make door art. So we each took a sheet of paper and just create something. It's usually 3D or it takes like eight hours to create these things. So we do that. And gingerbread houses, they're out of control with some relatives that live in Nashville with us. It takes about nine hours to do our gingerbread houses because oh they're goodness. huge. Do you make the gingerbread yourself too? We were going to one year, but we use so much of it. We just use uh, graham crackers. Oh, wow. Okay. And make from that. But they're used. One year it was like 52 inches high and it's four feet by four feet. The thing was enormous. We couldn't even move it. Wow. They're just huge. Takes forever. And we go caroling, dressed as Dickens carolers, and we do this gigantic Christmas Eve dinner. Everyone dresses up and, you know, Christmas Day. You know, and typically when people get up, I've heard and I've actually seen some, they get up and just tear into the presents and then it's over and they go back to bed. When I was younger, we would always get up and my mom would make coffee because we all drank coffee at a young age. <laughs> And so, you know, none of us cared about waiting for the coffee to be done. And it's not decaf coffee. you know. Oh, absolutely not. That I would be decaf in my house. That would be people heresy. Over, yeah. People come over and ask for decaf and I'm like, uh, sorry. Yeah. What's <laughs> <have> that? Water. <laughs> so yeah, she'd make coffee. And then before we'd open presents, my father would read the Christmas story. And then we would take turns opening a present at a time, just watching each other. So it wasn't like pandemonium. We didn't know what anyone got because paper was flying everywhere you know it was just organized and peaceful and nice and you know i guess that's why i liked it it was never really a bad experience for me so it was very good so how many people were in your family so your mom and dad you and your siblings yeah just my sister pam that's okay. all the four of us just four of you yeah just the four of us but we usually had my mom's parents and my dad's parents they were always with us too my grandfather died when I was actually five. So that's why it's kind of nice that I can remember when I was two about him giving me coffee because I never really knew him too much. So they were there. There weren't a lot of people, but, you know, maybe like six or eight. We always, and when we got older, we had friends, people that didn't have family in town. You know, they'd come over or relatives come from out of town, whatever. Yeah. What was the gift quantity per person back then? Oh my gosh, you know what? I remember waking up one night after Santa had come and Santa, when I was little, would always set all the toys up that we got. Oh, wow. He yeah, was a he, busy one. He was. He was amazing. And I remember waking up once going into the living room and there was a Hot Wheel track all over the living room. He must have brought me every piece of track that they made that year. It was <laughs> all over. So I don't know if it was so much like we never got a lot of stuff, I don't think. But what we got, we just appreciated and enjoyed. I don't ever remember thinking, well, gosh, I didn't get very much this year. You know, I guess I was a bad boy. <laughs> yeah. But we were always happy with what we got and it was always enough. And I remember one year I got a pink robe because Santa had put the wrong name on <laughs> that Santa <laughs> and my sister got a blue robe. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny the things you remember, <laughs> right? 
Well, the reason I asked about the gift quantity is because I'm trying to figure out whether we are normal here in our house or if we are abnormal. And oh, quite well, honestly, I think we have crossed the line into far well, sure. well into abnormal. You know, you kind of go out of control. And sometimes, you know, and my father did this. I do this all the time. I'm like, after Christmas, you're like, hey, did you get that one thing? And they didn't get it. And then you remember in May where you put it. You, you hit it because there's so many other gifts that you forget right. that you've hid them all over the house and or you know Santa didn't bring them if anyone's listening yeah. Um, so yeah it's easy to go out of control because when you're out shopping you're like oh they'll like this they'll like that they'll love this they gotta have this right <laughs> you know and if nothing else we as adults get to be kids because we get to play with their toys again right what is it do you think about the Christmas season that as much as it can bring out the worst in society and humanity, if you dig deep, it really kind of brings out not the worst. Right. The Christmas spirit. It's like I keep a uh, – my Spotify account has just got playlists for you know walking the dog. I've got a playlist for that. <laughs> um, I, I don't actually, but that will be one I'll make tomorrow because I just now thought of it. Right, it sounds great. <laughs> I, I have the most playlists that are Christmas themed. I have, you know, Christmas festive, you know, so if we're if we're having a party and I want some upbeat Christmas music, boom, there it is. Hey, and you know what I don't need to hear is rocking around the Christmas tree because that oh. will never go in any of my Christmas playlists. Thank which you. is why I make <laughs> my own because I don't want to rely on someone else's because invariably that one will be in there. But I'm considering making one, I guess I'll call it like Christmas spirit or something, because I've noticed a lot of songs like in the last 10 years that deal with, you know, hey, you know, we all get along that, you know, the Christmas spirit is there, you know. Uh, well, it's like the song from uh, Polar Express, When Christmas Comes to Town. Right. We, uh, we're, we're nicer to each other. I think Celine Dion's got a song called Don't Save It All for Christmas, right. for Christmas Day. Find a way. I need to scour my playlists and actually create that one. Maybe I'll get that done by the time the show notes are <laughs> available. But following the logic that if the music of our day is a social commentary, then I find it interesting that in the last 10, 15 years, there are more and more songs about that, which tells me that we as a society are either getting further and further away from the Christmas spirit and need it more or crossing fingers. We're actually becoming a little more human in our, the, the way we treat people. And that's a reflection. You know, the art is imitating life instead of life trying to imitate right. the art. I think people are longing for that again. You know, when Facebook and smartphones and everything came out, there was, friend of mine were sitting around watching everybody and they're like one day they're going to realize this is not good because no one's talking to anyone and we've actually gotten to that day because there are restaurants and all kind of places now that ban phones because they actually want you to talk to the person that you came with right so i think that people are longing for that christmas spirit again you know amazon all these other places which is very convenient i mean i use it myself we've taking the person out of the mall to go shopping and you don't get to <laughs> fight right. over that toy that you just got to have. Right. But that being aside, you don't get to hear the songs. You don't get to see the people shopping. You know, I went to the mall last year at 
two days before Christmas. I'm like, where is everybody? Is this Christmas or what? Wow. You know, I remember just being jam packed when I was a kid, but there's nobody there. And I think that people are longing for that. They want that feeling. They, they want that again. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that. Definitely smartphones and technology and the distractions are taking its toll on pretty much everybody. Right. <laughs> I'm going to think about that playlist. I bet I can pull 10 or 12 songs together. I mean, that's an album. That's a CD of that. Certainly you've, you've heard the Carpenters, right? Well, duh. It's only the best Christmas two albums ever, 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 <laughs> ever. capital E ever. Do they have a, I, mean, I know they have a lot, a lot of Christmas songs, but they have one that follows this theme, like a, a longing for, I call it the, I like to buy a world of Coke kind of mentality. Well, I, well, to me it is, I grew up with that. So it's like, you hear all these other Christmas songs. It's kind of like you're at a rock concert. And then you put on the Carpenters and you just get that uh, <laughs> right, warm blanket slippers, hot chocolate. And hot chocolate, yeah. You're like, oh, yeah, this is nice. Yeah. You know, her voice is like butter. Yes. Fantastic. She so, is a living, breathing clarinet. Right. Uh, let's just pause in a moment of silent prayer and think about Karen Carpenter. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Probably sacrilegious, but you know. <laughs> she was a remarkable singer. Oh. And an amazing drummer. Did you know she was a drummer? Yeah. yeah, she was that first. Yeah. Yeah, her story is amazing. You should read her story sometime if you haven't. It's the blue something. Did she write it? I don't know if she wrote it, but it's her. It's a story about her. It's very sad. Yeah. It's very sad, but, you know, as you're reading it and they talk about how they're writing these songs and then you find yourself singing them or you're like, I've got to hear it now. Right. That's the power of music. I saw a documentary on YouTube recently uh, about them, but I didn't think to see if there was a book. It's a great book. That's awesome. Well, this has been great, my friend. It has been. It's been great talking with you, sharing things. It's fun. And as always, I have learned something new about people that I've known for years. (laughs) There's always something hidden down deep in there that you've not heard yet. (laughs) Yes. And for me, it's the carving out the time to actually talk and converse. Um, When I, when I first thought of uh, the the theme for this podcast, it was really a response to really more of an anti-social media response because uh, in the election two years ago, the general election where the presidential election, I noticed that there were a lot of people talking at each other mm. and very few people talking with each other. Right. And right. I wanted to, in, instead of just longing for that Christmas spirit, again, more air quotes, I wanted to help usher that in and reignite the power of just conversation and getting to know people and restoring humanity and all that stuff. So that's cool. That's, yeah, that's great. It has been fun. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. That was a lot of fun and it's great talking with you. There you have it. A real life conversational biography with Stephen Tedeschi. For more of these conversations, subscribe now at collectedclan.com slash follow or Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast to never miss an episode. It's free to listen. Now for that special holiday surprise, an audio gift of the Christmas story from the book of Luke read by Stephen, his daughters, Michaela and Elise, Micah Byram, one of the Arts Place students, and me. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, 
to a virgin pledged to be married to a man whose name was Joseph, of David's house. The virgin's name was Mary. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, you highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was greatly troubled at the saying, and considered what kind of salutation this might be. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. There will be no end to his kingdom. How can this be, seeing I am a virgin? The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is born from you will be called the Son of God. Behold, Elizabeth, your relative, also has conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing spoken by God is impossible. Behold, the servant of the Lord, let it be done to me according to your word. The angel departed from her. Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste, into a city of Judah, and entered into the house of Zacharias, and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. She called out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the voice of your greeting came into my ears, the baby leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of things which have been spoken to her from the Lord. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has looked at the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy is for generations of generations on those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down princes from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has given help to Israel, his servant, that he might remember mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Mary stayed with her about three months, and then returned to her house. Now in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All went to enroll themselves, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to David's city, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, to enroll himself with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him as wife, being pregnant. While they were there, the day had come for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in bands of cloth and laid him in a feeding trough, because there was no room for them in the inn. There were shepherds in the same country staying in the field, and keeping watch by night over their flock. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. The angel said to them, Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be to all the people. For there is born to you today in David's city a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This is the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in strips of cloth, lying in a feeding trough. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly army praising God and saying, Glory, Glory to, to God, God in the highest, highest, 
on earth peace, goodwill toward men. When the angels went away from them into the sky, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem now and see the thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. They came with haste and found both Mary and Joseph and the baby was lying in the feeding trough. When they saw it, they publicized widely the saying which was spoken to them about this child. All who heard it wondered at the things which were spoken to them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these sayings, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, just as it was told them. Finally, the part read by Michaela is called the Magnificat, a poem or song of Mother Mary. Mary was a young Hebrew girl, and my friend Terry Peterson reads this ancient poem for us here in Hebrew. Thank you, Terry. Cheers to you all this holiday season. Surround yourself with people you love and spread some of the Christmas spirit we all deeply long for. Simple acts of kindness are broadly welcomed this time of year. This is also a difficult time for many people in our worlds, so some extra holiday cheer can spread a lot of comfort and joy. For further listening, pop over to collectedclan.com slash Stephen Tedeschi. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N-T-E-D-E-S-C-H-I. For that Christmas spirit playlist I mentioned, I made one. Plus additional info related to this episode. I'd love to hear from you. What did you love about this show? Drop us a note to collectedclan at gmail.com or a voice message at 615-592-5017. Your thoughts, questions, and feedback are always welcome. And as always, a big shout out to my friends Worldwide Groove Corporation for this episode's original music. The song is Mimosa from their album Chilodisiac Lounge Volume 1. Check out more of their music at worldwidegroovecorporation.com. Thank you again for listening. Now go be you. <laughs>